The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good evening and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, we're striving to be your public radio source for the news, information, strategies, and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and today is a very special pre-recorded program because uh, I am away, and yet I thought that this was a topic that you needed badly to hear about, and that is investing in your self-directed retirement health care education accounts, and most importantly, doing it without getting yourself into a bunch of really evil, bad, nasty, costly trouble. My guest today is John Heyer, who is a real estate attorney, or he's, a, he's an attorney and a tax attorney, and has been on this program many times talking about entities and tax advice and things like that, but more recently has gotten into the business of IRA tax defense, which sadly, John, is a growing opportunity for you. Yeah, good for me, bad for the country. <laughs> yes, and uh, this is this is something that uh, is relatively new. The, the 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 whole IRS going after people's self directed IRA things. Not that not that it did not happen in the past, but uh, in your view, it seems to be accelerating. Do we know why? Well, there there are a couple of reasons. The biggest one is. It's very expensive to spend as much as our government does, and they're finally figuring out they may have to try and pay for at least some of it. The IRS is under massive political pressure to, quote-unquote, raise revenue, which is polite language for shake you and me down. Uh, and I've talked to IRS agents who said they're, they're definitely stepping up audits of IRAs as we'll talk. They have a reason to. You can make a very simple mistake and cost yourself a lot. On the other hand, if you do it right, the compounded growth and the ability afterwards, if you're dealing with a Roth, to have the money not tax-deferred but tax-free is a huge benefit. But, yeah, they're, they're definitely stepping it up. They're auditing more. They're looking for that money. And in some cases, they're getting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're going to spend a lot of time in this show uh, really talking about some of the things that people should just avoid, watch out for, uh, because... Um, I think a lot of people have the impression that an IRA audit is sort of like a normal tax audit, where if they find that you did something wrong, you get charged for the taxes you didn't pay and maybe a penalty and then you move on. But that's not the way it works with self-directed IRAs, as I understand. No, with IRAs, 
and, and their subvariants, so HSAs, Coverdale Educational Savings Accounts, the whole nine yards. If you have a prohibited transaction, no matter how small, no matter how accidental, the IRA dies. What we tell people is a rule of thumb, 50 to 60% of the IRA goes to the government. For example, you got 1.6 mil in your IRA, you lend $1 to your mother, which is a clear prohibited transaction. You can figure a million out of that 1.6 is going to go to the government, uh, both state and federal. Mm-hmm. So one has to be careful. Now, here's something a lot of people don't know. A 401k, which there are self-directed 401ks, normally pay much, much smaller penalties if there's a prohibited transaction. So one reason we like those is there, there's less risk. It doesn't mean you can be a cowboy, but it means if you mess up, the penalty is often way, way less. And the example I gave, it would be 15 cents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're going to direct folks who maybe are hearing the term self-directed IRA, self-directed 401k uh, for the first time this evening uh, back to our podcasts on realliferealestate.com because we have massive discussions about, you know, what the different uh, plans are, what the, uh, you know, minimum money that you can put in is and what the maximum income you can make is. So if uh, if you're hearing about self-directed IRAs, 401ks, CISAs, HSAs, that sort of thing uh, for the very first time uh, and you want to get some background, you can go, you can go to realliferealestate.com. It's got about 200 shows podcasts there and you want to look for the ones by John Bowens and um, uh, they'll, they'll be titled IRA someplace in the title and you can you can get a whole bunch of background uh, on that. Uh, but today we're going to focus on some stuff that is a little bit more uh, advanced, more for the folks who are currently doing these kinds of transactions and who are uh, contemplating doing these kinds of transactions. We're also going to talk about some of John's successful clients, and we're going to answer some questions that folks have sent in to us today because I let them know that uh, we were doing this program and people always have lots of questions for John. Before we do that, though, we are going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is John Heyer, a tax attorney who is now uh, built an entire little niche for himself doing defense, tax defense for IRAs and other self-directed type plans that lots of real estate investors and note buyers like to do deals in because those deals become tax-free or tax-deferred. And we're talking today about some higher-level stuff. Um, if you're a beginner, check out our podcast, realliferealestate.com. Uh, but John, before we before we dive into the stuff that's going to scare the heck out of people, you and I are both very pro investing in these self directed plans. We don't want anybody to mistake that. You have seen some people that, through wise, non prohibited <laughs> investments, have done extraordinarily well for themselves. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people have Googled what happens how fast a dollar grows into a million with or without taxes. It's a huge difference. We've seen far more people succeed than fail. But knowing that that, that someone's looking over their shoulder, namely our good friends at Internal Revenue, we want to do it carefully, cautiously. And as you mentioned, because if you mess up, the consequences are large, 
we want to be very careful. But the rewards, the rewards of doing it correctly are immense. To give you an example, I know of a gentleman here in Ohio who has over 50 free and clear rentals in a Roth IRA, and he's over 60, which means all that income goes to him with no income tax. That's a heck of a reward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing you can live off of for the rest of your life without ever selling a house. Yeah, you, he's done if he wants to be. <laughs> now, if he chooses to continue to make money, for him, he doesn't need it. It's just to keep score. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, another another big advantage to the self-directed IRAs that I think that um, it's, it's, it's a softer benefit, but the fact that the money is tied up there until you're 59 and a half or 70 or whatever the age of withdrawal is for your particular plan uh, is, is a good thing, right? Because, you know, you can't take the income out, which means those reserves that you need for your rentals build up there and the income from the investments builds up there and you have to go make more investments with them. You can't take them out and go play with them. And it's a, it's a, a, a you know, it's a great plan for um, folks who are not building up their retirement income the way they should be outside of an IRA. Well, and I think you just hit the nail on the head for the good and the bad, because the government's whole purpose is that you don't try and use it or spend it beforehand, and that's where people get into trouble, where they try to use today's IRA money, whatever's in the IRA, how can I pay myself? How can I get a salary? How can I do a deal with my IRA that I get a benefit personally? And the whole point is not to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's both the point, but it is the upside, some forced savings so there's something put aside later, and some nice asset protection for that matter. Money in an IRA, and especially money in a 401K, is a lot harder for creditors to get after. So let's say something goes wrong in your life and in your business, there's a judgment against you. If you played your cards right, your retirement assets are still protected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So lots of advantages. And uh, the reason that we are going to talk more about what not to do in this show than what to do is we only have a limited amount of time. And uh, I know you're going to be at the 2015 OREA National uh, Real Estate Strategy Summit, uh, where you're going to be um, given the opportunity to talk about this for a lot longer, for like a nine, 90 minutes all in a row, as, as opposed to about the 45 minutes we have on the show by the time that all the dust settles out. I guess what I'm trying to do is make sure that folks who listen to the show today don't go, well, I shouldn't invest in an IRA because it's too scary. There's, it's not too scary if you understand the rules. And that's the problem is that a lot of people try to do it without understanding the rules. Well, let's, let's remember that a lot of civilians would say buying a rental property or rehabbing a property is really risky and scary and I shouldn't do it. But I'll bet a lot of our listeners do it and do it well. So the question becomes, can you manage the risk? And I think if it's intelligent and planned ahead of time, it's doable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So you probably have as much or more experience at this point uh, than any other single attorney in the United States dealing with the problem that happens when the IRS says to an IRA holder, uh, we think you did something wrong. Come on in here and prove that that's not the case. What are the most common things that you're seeing that, number one, trigger an audit, and number two, make it go badly? In terms of triggering it, they don't really release 
what causes it. Now, I ask IRS agents a lot of questions, BS with them, and they kind of give you some indications, but it's never official. With that said, they're certainly looking at IRAs that have real estate, that have LLCs, that have trusts. They're looking at those, and in self-directed in general, because for a long time there was no law, and everybody was a cowboy and did whatever they wanted, and the IRS figured out, oh, there's some easy pickings because people got sloppy. So they look for that. What I last saw when I was when I was looking, they said they were auditing Roth IRAs that were over 500,000, and it wasn't obviously every one of them. They don't have the resources to do that. It was it was more of them. And I would say a really rapid increase in the value. Let's say the thing has $500 in it, and at the end of the year it has 100,000. That is such a rapid increase that that might get some attention. Now, is it okay if you can explain it, if it makes sense? Sure. On the other hand, if you played some games in there and did something fishy to expand it that way, that's going to get some attention. So that's what I would say gets attention. In terms of what people have done wrong, the IRS is still learning. This is very new for them. They're starting to get a little more sophisticated, but I'd still say they're basically like an 800-pound two-year-old. <laughs> they're still toddling around. They haven't quite learned how to walk. But if they step on you, it's going to hurt. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they're learning, but right now they're still picking up really basic prohibited transactions, things like making a loan to your mom, uh, things like staying in the condo. You know, you have a condo in Florida, your IRA owns it, and you decide that would be a great place for vacation. Maybe next door would be a great place for vacation, but the IRA, no, not such a good idea. So they're picking up on basic things, and they're starting to try with some more advanced concepts. Um, The way it works is most of the lower-level people at the IRS, even the ones who audit IRAs fairly regularly, first, there aren't very many. Second, they still have a lot of learning to do. The national office in D.C., there are a bunch of specialists, sort of egghead, think tank type of guys. They're pretty sharp. They know what they're doing but there aren't very many of them. So they're still in the process of learning. So I think most of what we see in terms of mess-ups are real basic ones right now, but they are getting better at slowly starting to explore the more subtle things. In fact, what I like to do is try and anticipate, knowing what I know, what would I do if I were they to raise revenue? And I try to think about that ahead of time before they figure it out so we can advise the client, don't do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Basic rule, obviously, is don't do transactions with people that are prohibited to your IRA. Correct. And that's, that's you, your parents, your children. Um, weirdly, some of your relatives are okay. Sort of. I mean, that, that's a subtle thing. See, people say all the time, okay, John, I read the rule, and it says I can't invest with descendants, ancestors, my spouse, and my spouse's descendants. So I can invest with my brother, Bob, and I'm going to pay him money to rehab my house. But there's a separate subtle issue with that. You're not allowed to use your IRA to benefit yourself. And that benefit can be small and indirect. So it's helping out your 'er ne'er-do-well brother get a job, maybe a job better than he could have gotten anywhere else. Is that a personal benefit to you? I think the courts would say, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the rules can get pretty complex. And again, that's why we take the time to learn them and are conservative and careful about what we do. I can tell you a good synopsis that boils a lot down, and obviously it's not enough to just go off the synopsis, but a good synopsis is direct, don't do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And invest with third parties as much as possible. Um, okay. You know, when you, want, when you want to invest with people you know, 
that is an upside. You know them, you trust them, you know their expertise, but they could also be a disqualified party. And so then there has to be a, a discussion of, is someone you thinks not disqualified disqualified? Because those rules are complex. Okay, so uh, let's let's take other relationships. Um, uh, investing with your boss or your employees, yay or nay? No, that's a big X nay. Your boss, even if he's not your employer that sponsors the plan, because you might have a boss and you might have a plan separate that that company doesn't sponsor. Maybe you work two jobs or you have something on the side. But working with your boss makes it look like you're trying to cuddle up to him and make nice. So the question again is, is that a personal benefit to you? Um, I let my boss stay in my condo in Florida, and I don't charge him. Clearly, I'm trying to make nice with them to my personal benefit. How about I let him stay in the condo in Florida, the IRA condo, and I charge him the same as everyone else? You know, the IRS can still argue there was a benefit. It made your boss happy, even if he just had access. And remember, you have to prove them wrong, which is it's different than being right. Being right and being able to prove you're right are two very different things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So boss, no, and employee, certainly not. There's both a personal benefit issue, plus there are some issues with them being in, in other ways a disqualified party. So boss and employee, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, friends? Possible. Depends on what else is going on. Now i got to ask about the arrangement. Make sure it's clean, that it's you're not using a friend to disguise kickbacks to you. Maybe you, your friend does business with the IRA and then he passes you money on the side. That would be a problem. But otherwise, if it's a friend doing legitimate business, and I'm assuming you don't have any other business relationship with them. Because sometimes if someone's a partner or an officer in a company or an employee of a company you have a relationship with, that can be a problem. So if it's just a friend probably going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a much harder line than you would have drawn or that any of the folks that we've had come on to talk about IRAs would have drawn 10 years ago. Even four years ago. And that's because the IRS has finally started looking at things. They've been winning some cases in court, and it's made us think in new ways. I guess there's a, the old saying, nothing concentrates the mind so much as the prospect of being hanged in a fortnight. Now, that's not quite so bad in this case, but just the fact that they're looking and some of the arguments they've been making kind of gives you an idea of the direction of the law. It makes you more careful. But, yeah, this is a harder line than people used to take, and it needs to be, given where things are headed. Very good. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about this whole issue of services to your IRA and how that might get you into trouble or how to uh, deal with those things. And we're also going to take some listener questions that we've received via email at realliferealestate.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is tax attorney John Heyer, who is one of the more than 15 featured speakers at the upcoming OREA National Real Estate Strategy Summit. You can sign yourself up for that summit and get the benefit of four days of advice from folks who, while maybe not just as smart as John, are awfully good at what they do in today's market. Uh, by going to wmkvfm.org. And when you uh, grab your seat through that website, you also support public radio. Isn't that awesome? You get four days of education for under $200 and also keep a great little public radio station on the air. That's wmkvfm.org. 
Now, John, one of the one of the big contentious arguments that has been going on for years and years and years and years with IRAs has to do with the practicality of the fact that a lot of real estate investments are hands-on in some way or another, and yet you're not supposed to do what's called, quote, providing services to your IRA. So where this, where this comes up is my IRA owns a rental, and the rental goes vacant, and I want to put a good tenant back into my rental, which, which would make me a good fiduciary of my IRA's investment. But at the same time, there's an argument that like a property manager would charge money for that. So, so did I just provide a service or did I do the right thing? Or do I always, always, always need to have some dis- uh, disconnected third party doing everything with my properties and investments? All right, the framework is, and you've had me on here before, you know I'm normally aggressive with taxes. In a normal tax environment, outside of IRAs, playing the gray in the law statistically pays. And we won't go into the details. Just trust the nice lawyer who won't lie to you. Mm-hmm. Normally playing the gray, you do a lot better than what it costs you. But in the IRAs, we're very careful and conservative. So here's the problem. The code says you can't provide a service. You can't furnish a service to your IRA. And it doesn't say, first of all, for pay, which means free services could be a problem. And here's the big catch. The code doesn't define a service. We don't know what it is. We just know that if you do one, your IRA dies and it costs you a lot of money. So with that in mind, we don't know what this definition is, and it's probably going to be a while to the courts define it, and we may not like the definition. You want to risk your IRA. And this is hard for landlords because they're like, but, but I can do this better than a manager, and it's going to be cheap. And my response is, great, you save the cost of a manager. By the way, your IRA dies. Was that cheap? So I don't know what a service is. My question becomes, do you want to try it and risk it? I have. Don't get me wrong. People get really upset with me. They get all bent out of shape and say, you know, you're just against us and you're one of them. And you've heard me talk about where I'm at on that. That's just not the case. I have a blue lightsaber, not a red lightsaber. No question about it. But my job is to anticipate, if I were one of those lawyers, what would I argue? So is signing a lease with a tenant, is interviewing a tenant a service? I got lots of great arguments that it's not if you ever get audited. But can I promise that I'm going to win that? I can't. So could that be a service? It could. Now, we know that swinging a hammer is a service for sure. I, I think there's just no question. If that's not a service, nothing is. But some of the more subtle things, for example, managing an LLC. It's very popular to have an LLC managed by yourself. Five years ago, I would have set one of those up. Today, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it. Why? Because we don't know if managing your own LLC is a service. So the law is changing. If you have an LLC that says you're the manager, you may want to think about hiring a third party to do that for you. And it's not as bad or as difficult as you think. We do it all the time. I would definitely have an outside management company, for example, if you have rentals. I would definitely do that. You, you just don't want to find out what's a service the hard way. And, and who knows when the courts are going to get around to defining it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about a rehabber who buys a property in his IRA to renovate and resell, and uh, hi- he does not go in there and swing a hammer, but he does directly hire the subcontractors who do that and oversee them? So the question then becomes, if you're acting as a GC, a general contractor, is that a service? I think there's a strong argument that it is. 
I think you should direct and not do. I think it's okay to ride your vendors, right? When you when you shepherd, when you overlook your invest, overlook is probably not the right word. When you are the steward of your investment, you're going to ride some of the contractors. But again, we have to have a line. Should you show up every day at the rental, dictate the color of paint, and film what everybody's doing, and then go to Lowe's and pick up things for them? No, that's a bad idea. That sounds like a service to me. Mm-hmm. But do you have some contact and some influence? Yes. It probably pays to have a good GC. Now, some people don't like that. Again, they say it's more expensive. I'm not going to make as much on the deal. I'm going to be the GC, and you can't stop me. And they're right, I can't. And it's not my purpose to do so. It's your, it's your account. You have to decide what risks you're willing to take. Just understand if you cross a line that we don't know where it is, you've got a big problem. So I would not act as your own GC, but I still would be involved with writing whoever is the GC. How about, uh, I'm trying to cover everybody, how about a note buyer who buys a defaulted or performing note uh, and then, uh, you know, notices have to be sent because it uh, the payment doesn't come in or 1099s have to be sent or... Uh, you know, all the stuff that, that goes along with massaging your notes so that it performs. That's a real middle ground. Again, I still have to ask the question, do you want to risk it? The problem is this. The upside is when you're dealing with notes, a lot of what you do with a note is more administrative, more desk-like, seems more like a normal investor would do maybe with their stocks and bonds and such. It's more in that direction. Now that we know for sure it's not going to be a service, we don't. Here's the problem, the psychological issue. What do you call it? What's the word we use when you have a note and you're the one collecting the payments and depositing them and tracking them and calling people if they don't pay? What's the word we have for I that? I think you're looking for the word servicer. Yeah. Service. And I don't like that word. So even though the substance of what they do I think is less servicey than, say, a GC or a, or a property manager, that word bothers me. There's a psychological impact. So, again, I would really prefer to see investors direct and not do. Mm -hmm. Which brings us around to wholesaling, which is, of course, one of the most popular ways traditionally of growing an IRA, especially when, you know, all you can put in is your $5,500 each year and it takes a long time to get that to a point where you can buy a rental or do a rehab. Um, Wholesalers put properties under contract and then they call a bunch of people and try to sell the contract is how at what point is that a service and what should they be doing instead i prefer to see them close on the property that the ira somehow come up with the ability i don't know if it needs a partner if it needs to borrow and all of that has implications but we can plan around it i prefer to see it close on the property we have to remember that the irs is not normal they have a lot more power than most legal authorities including what's called substance over form in other words, I can say something's a duck, but if it wags its tail and has fleas, and the only reason anyone would think it's a duck is that I put a sign around its neck that says duck, they can look at that and say, um, yeah, that's a dog. So they can reclassify things. And here's the problem. With assigning a contract, they have an argument that that's really a disguised service that the property itself had very little value, that that where you derived the value was not, that the contract somehow magically went up in value, that you had $50 in and now it's worth $20,000. First of all, that kind of jump gets attention. Second, they would say the only reason that had any value was all the time and the effort you put into finding 
finding the property is not such a big deal. That's finding an investment. I don't have an issue with that. But it's finding the buyer's list and functionally getting paid to do something for that buyer. You know, on paper you sold them something, but in practice they have an argument that that's a service. So it makes me nervous. It makes me real nervous to assign that way. I'd much rather see them close on the property and turn around and sell it because then you can show, look, I, I just did what IRAs do. IRAs buy a property, and then they resell the property. And I understand totally the argument that the little piece of paper that contracts a property, but getting a tax judge to buy that argument is another thing entirely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there, you did not just say that anything, any of the strategies we just talked about could not or should not be done in your IRA. That's correct. What you just said was that you better be careful how you're doing them, who you're doing them with, and honestly, you better plan for a little more expense in any of these strategies than you might have if you were just doing it, you know, in a in a non-tax preferred <laughs> uh, environment. Yeah, so you jack your expense up some because having other people involved costs both time and money. I get it, but the benefits are so great. Instead of being silly cheap and saving a few nickels that end up costing you a lot more later, why not do it right to begin with? Use quality people, pay them, knowing that you can afford to do so because you're avoiding. For some people that are listening, avoiding tax means avoiding half the deal, right? For some of the people that are in the top marginal rate for federal income tax, which is functionally 40%, plus they're in a state that has a high rate of 10%, and I'm not even thinking about self-employment tax, which might throw another 4% or so on top of there, you know, half or more of the deal could go to taxes depending on your bracket. This is very powerful. Let me compound it with something. All of this works not just for retirement, but for your health care and for putting your kids through private school, including K through 12 private school. To give you an example, I have this, I travel to South America. My wife's from there. I get some medical care there. It's been very high quality about 20 to 25 percent of the cost that is in the U.S., and I have this strange relationship with my doctors in Latin America. I give them money and they give me services. There's no lawyer, insurance agent, or government person in the room. And I can pay for that through an HSA, which functions an awful lot like a Roth IRA. So there's food for thought. There's a lot of money at stake here. Why not do it right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, you know, if you if you're still listening and wondering, like, you know, what, how do how how does paying an extra ten percent for my uh, out of my income for a rental make sense when I already don't pay taxes on my rentals because of the depreciation? You got to throw that out, you know, ten twenty years to where you might want to sell the rental, recapture all that depreciation. In other words, pay taxes is such a nice word. I recaptured it like it escaped, but now I have it back. But that's not what it is. It's paying taxes on it and then paying capital gains taxes and all of that sort of thing. And not only do you save that, but if you sold that, if you sold the property in five years, you have all that pre-tax money to go back into a bigger deal than you could have bought had you paid taxes on it. Well, and again, let me, let me reiterate. I know a guy has 50 free and clear rentals in a Roth. He's over 60, so he takes the rent out of his Roth if he wants to. He can take it out. He can leave it in there. But if he takes it out every month, he takes it out tax-free. 
So this idea that, oh, I shouldn't do tax-protected investments like rentals and something like a Roth is just lunacy. <laughs> lunacy, that's a good word on which to take our last break. Uh, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is tax attorney John Heyer, who, if you're just joining us, has been doing lots of IRA tax defense lately. Not so much because it was something he went after, but because there is more tax defense to be done. Because the IRS is looking at self-directed IRAs to see if you've done something wrong. Because if you have, they can take away like 60% of your IRA and uh, just hand you back the remaining cash and say, yeah, bye-bye. So we have some questions from listeners that uh, came in, even though this is a pre-recorded show, because I posted it on uh, Facebook and on realliferealestate.com today that we were doing this pre-recording and ask folks what their most important questions were. And here is a really ugly one, John, from a listener in Arizona who does not wish to be identified for reasons that you're going to hear in a minute. He says, I recently learned that a transaction I did early on in my IRA is absolutely prohibited. Without getting into too much detail, it was with my brother. What would John's suggestion be at this point? Should I fess up? Should I open up a new IRA? Should I just keep my head low and pray? What is the plan going forward? All right, let's let's talk. Let's answer two questions. What happens when you have a gray prohibited transaction? Some of the stuff I'm talking about, for example, you're landlording for your property, you're managing your your IRA owned LLC, uh, you acted as general contractor on a flip. That's gray. There's no law that says it is prohibited. What I'm saying is it could be, and we want to be careful. So when it's gray, I think you fix it. And and that's usually when people call me and we discuss how do you do that. When it's black and white, so let's assume he's right. Whatever it is he did was was horrible and black and white. What do you? I can tell you what the law says you're supposed to do, right? As a lawyer, if I want to keep my license, I have to advise you follow the law. The law says you distribute your IRA, you pay a lot of taxes and penalties. Now, I tell people to do that all the time, and for some reason they don't. <laughs> um, but that's what I have to advise. If it's black and white, you're supposed to distribute. If you choose not to distribute and they catch it, obviously it's going to cost you quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk some at, at OREA about how do we, what are some ways to quote-unquote fix things and what's the likelihood of them looking at it, how far they go back, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, unfortunately, I just got to tell you when it's black and white, you're supposed to distribute, and I can't advise you to not follow the law. Mm-hmm. Now, the, there was a there was a sort of um, a subtle undertone to his question here that I'm going to ask more directly, and that is, if he stopped doing anything with this IRA, so in other words, it just sort of floats from now on, it makes whatever it makes based on the investments, and opens up a different one and starts doing investments through that, is, is the potential problem with IRA number one going to cloud IRA number two? Well, as long as you didn't roll anything over from IRA number one, you're fine in, in IRA number two. They're separate. On the other hand, if you roll IRA number one to IRA number two, then the likely result is that the seed from, from IRA number one that was tainted taints number two as well. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. There's really no law on there. So I'd be very conservative. I would start doing deals out of a – I'd continue to do deals in this one, right? Why let the money sit? 
but I'd do your best deals in one of the other IRAs. So it's a great approach. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we have a question from Tom who lives here in the Cincinnati area about uh, what's called checkbook LLCs. And he says, I'm confused about checkbook LLCs. My custodian will not let me have one, and yet I get come-ons almost every week from IRA custodians that say they're fine and try to sell me one. What is John's opinion on checkbook LLCs? Like most things, it depends. A couple thoughts. First of all, they complicate things, and you only complicate things when there's a benefit. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is truly, why are you using the checkbook LLC? And I can think of some legitimate reasons I can think of some that aren't so good. Uh, An example of a legitimate reason is asset protection. If you have rentals in your IRA, your IRA does not have an asset protection shield in the way a corporation or LLC does. You're personally liable. So that's a good reason to have one. There are good ones and there are bad ones. 95% plus of the ones I've seen are bad. I'll give you an example. I mentioned the services issue. Most checkbook LLC providers just go ahead and let you run it yourself without disclosing the issue. You know, you can make the decision. I'll tell you, hey, this could be a service. We don't know if it is. If it is a service, it's really bad. Do you want to risk it? Or do you want to have someone else manage it? And that's a pain, but you avoid that risk. What do you want to do? And and most people go with, let's have a a manager that's separate. These people are not well enough informed to even give you that decision. Remember to a guy with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. They say they give you a customized agreement. They don't. What they do is they have a template, and most of the templates are not good. I've got about 20 of them in my my computer where somebody had one set up. And we go through and say, you know, here's why this agreement wasn't very good. Whoever wrote it doesn't understand IRAs, doesn't understand where the IRS is at today. They're just printing a template, selling it, making their money. And worst of all, here's my biggest issue by far with the so-called checkbook LLCs. I won't even use the name except as a pejorative. I do IRA-owned LLCs. I don't do checkbook LLCs because over the last few years, for me, it's become a pejorative. And five years ago, I thought differently, but we're learning, and those of us who stay caught up with the law know, here's my issue with checkbook LLCs, the biggest issue by far. The owners are not educated to use them correctly. It puts you in control, and that's a good thing and a bad thing depending on how much you know. it's like giving a 12-year-old pyromaniac a flamethrower and sending him to the gas station for matches. You know what's going to happen. (laughs) And so that's my biggest issue with checkbook LLCs. A lot of the people who have them don't know how to use them and are setting themselves up for failure. And the IRS is aware of this. They're very aware of checkbook LLCs and especially self-managed ones. So if you've got one, A, evaluate do you truly need it, B, is it properly set up? C, most of all, do you know how to use it properly? And if not, go get that education. It's very important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there, there's a lot of so bad it verges on criminal information out there about uh, what you're calling checkbook LLCs, which is basically, I mean, the pitch is you get a checkbook and you can write a check for an investment. You don't have to, you know, wait three days for your custodian to issue you a check and you don't have to have them ever look over one of your investments or anything. And that's, that idea is being aggressively sold to people by certain other companies uh, with almost the attitude of don't even worry about it. You got the checkbook. And let me add, if they're done right, custodians will take them. I've yet to run across a custodian who won't take it 
once I say it's okay. I, I can name three custodians right off the top of my head that officially do not permit checkbook LLCs, but if I send an agreement in for them to review and say it's okay and here's why it's okay, they're, they're fine with it, especially once they realize the investor has been educated in it. But most of what's out there is self-serving garbage created by ignorant people. <laughs> they really don't. Need, look, people are buying checkbook LLCs from non-lawyers. There's a couple of guys on the West Coast that have set a few up, well, actually quite a lot up. They have a good marketing system. And it's a template, and they have no idea what they're doing or talking about. And I've seen the agreement, and I've changed it for clients that brought it to me and explained, look, here are six things I found that would blow it up. You can't do that, and here's why. And that's the most important part. Here's why. It's your, it's your IRA. You make the decision. I'm going to tell you what I think. My job is to advise. Your job is to decide. I'm the advisor. You're the client. But usually when you put it a certain way to them and you just ask, for example, we don't know if X is a service. Do you really want to find out? But, John, it's a pain. I don't want to change. Okay, that's fine. But I don't want to get audited and lose. Okay, well, decide which one you want less. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, again, as as we say here, every time one of these uh, more complex legal or tax issue com- issues comes up, you you got to get an expert. Um, you know, I, I've talked to people whose accountants have advised them that they couldn't get IRAs at all because their income was too high, which is not correct. I've talked to people who've been told checkbook LLCs are fine and here, just take this one. And I, I guarantee you, listeners, you do not understand the checkbook LLC that you were just handed uh, until you have run it past a knowledgeable IRA attorney, somebody who who does this all the time. And you can Hear more from John Heyer and and a lot more of the good stuff about IRAs and uh, CESAs and HSAs and other tax-free plans at the upcoming OREA National Real Estate Summit. Again, you want more information about that and to sign up before it gets to be too late, go to wmkvfm.org. That's wmkvfm.org. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. 